Our scripture reading is found on page 16. Will you please join me now in a prayer of illumination. Lord, each Sunday we light the Christ candle and reminds us that it is only in your light that we see light. Now, Lord, enlighten our minds and our hearts and guide our lives through your word and your Holy Spirit. Amen. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Runa the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord in the, on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David went up to Gad's word as the Lord had commanded him. And when Aruna looked, he saw the king and his servant coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, 
Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. The word of the Lord. I uh, try and plan my sermon series, uh, you know, at least two or three months in advance. A benefit of this is that I've, I've planned ahead. A downside is I sometimes forget what I've planned for myself. You know, and I've been wondering all week, you know, did I really choose this text? You know, and, and to end our series on the life of David, uh, uh, but the, the, more I, the more I've thought about it, the more I realized uh, that this is the perfect text to end uh, this series with. And, and let me try and show you why today. Now, one obvious reason is that this is the, the very last chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel tell the story of the life of David. And these are the very last verses. It's a little more obvious if you have a Bible in your hands, but this is how the, the book of 2 Samuel ends. Uh, it's, it's not random. Uh, the, this, the author very deliberately uh, ended uh, this account of David's life here. So what is going on? Well, this made me think of something that the New York Times columnist David Brooks says in his book, The, the Road to Character. Uh, there, he makes a distinction uh, between what he calls the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues are the ones that you list on your resume, uh, you know, your, your job market skills, your achievements, uh, the things that contribute to your external success uh, in the world. And these, of course, have their, their place, but we all too easily become overly focused on them uh, building our resumes, and lose sight of what he calls the eulogy virtues. Uh, the eulogy virtues are the things that would be talked about at your funeral. You know, what kind of person you were, whether you were kind or brave or honest or faithful or gentle, what kinds of relationships that you formed and, and lived into. If you think about it, King David's resume, it would have been phenomenal. He came from nothing and rose to become the king of Israel. He overcame so many obstacles along the way. He must have been you know, a very gifted 
person, a very skilled political and military leader. But as we've seen, uh, you know, especially in the past uh, couple of weeks, his life was also marked by deep failure. And so the question is, you know, what do we take away from a life like this? Of a, a life of enormous outward success and achievement, and also moral failure and struggle and sin. And I think this is why the book ends here. This is what uh, 2 Samuel 24 wants us to consider. Uh, So let's look at three things. Uh, David's failure, God's mercy, and our hope. First, David's failure. The, The first part of this chapter, which we didn't read today, describes how David took a census of the nation of Israel. Uh, He numbered the people. And in particular, he numbered the men who could draw a sword. And in verse 10 of our text, we're told that that David's heart struck him after he did this. Uh, He was convicted. He knew he had done something wrong, and he, he confessed his sin to the Lord. Now, commentators disagree on exactly what was wrong here. Why would taking a a census be so bad? But uh, I think it's related to a theme that we've seen several times in this series, that that over time, uh, David has become more and more accustomed to his power as the king. And we've seen him use it uh, again and again in ways that benefit him most. Uh, this wouldn't have been surprising in, in most you know, nations of the world throughout history, but this was not God's vision uh, for his king. And a census is one of the first things you do in mobilizing a nation's military power. David wants to know what troops he has at his command, and we don't know exactly why or you know, what, what he had planned. You know, it might have been so that he could go on the offense you know, against a neighboring nation, or maybe he just you know, wanted to take pride in the power that he had accrued. Uh, but after the census is completed, he's convicted. And his confession teaches us an important lesson. You know, he says, uh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The first thing to, to see here is that he's, on, he's open and honest about what he has done. And, and here, I think we do see some growth in the character of David. Now, remember last week, it wasn't until the prophet Nathan came and confronted David uh, about his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah uh, that he confesses. But today, we see that his heart struck him. He's convicted himself, and he brings it to the Lord without mitigation, and without excuse. And this, this, I think, points us to one of the main lessons we can take away from David's life. And it's a lesson that we learn not from his goodness, his success, but from his repentance, how he repents. Uh, He shows us that the, the test of spiritual maturity is not whether or not we fail. 
We all will fail in various ways because we live in a fallen world. We participate in that brokenness ourselves. The test of spiritual maturity is how quickly we confess what we've done and seek forgiveness. I know that in my own life, one of uh, my biggest problems when I was younger uh, was my inability to admit uh, when I was wrong. Uh, Linda and I have uh, now been married almost 25 years. Our our 25th anniversary is is next March. And I know that uh, when we were first married and I did or or said uh, something that was hurtful to her, uh, my instinct was just to dig in deeper, you know? which really just led to the argument going on much longer than it needed to. Uh, But it was really my pride that was the problem. It took me too long to admit that I had messed up. It's the same in our relationship with God. It's usually our pride that prevents us from going to him, not just the wrong that we've done, And often, this is what leads to uh, what might be a relatively minor offense, leading over time to much bigger offenses, because we don't simply confess early and often. But if you'll make it your habit to confess quickly when you're wrong, without mitigation or excuse, you'll find that this is what leads to, to real growth. The Christian life is not just about trying harder to do what is right, but being honest with yourself and with God about the ways in which you go astray. This is why Psalm 23 invites us to see ourselves as sheep, and the Lord is our shepherd who is always guiding us into paths of righteousness. Another element of an honest confection is accepting that there may be consequences uh, to our actions. Uh, Christians are always called to forgive, but this doesn't mean that there's no accountability or a consequence when we or or someone else has done wrong. And in David's case, uh, we see this very clearly. And because he is the king, uh, the representative of his people, the, the effects of his actions are tremendous. Uh, His sin leads to the suffering of his people. There's a basic point being made here that we also saw last week when David uh, sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. And uh, we read that part of the punishment was that the the child that Bathsheba bore died. And you might have been troubled by that death last week, uh, but today we find 70,000 people dying from this plague. Uh, because of what David has done. I mean, it's horrible. Uh, But I think this is because uh, in the mindset of the biblical writers, there is never an isolated sin. Just one individual commits, and it's kept to them. When we do wrong, it, it always has ripple effects that spread to others. And we may not be able to understand uh, exactly how David's numbering of the people is connected to this plague, Uh, But spiritually speaking, the author is saying that there is a connection here. 
really, this is a way of thinking about a, a kind of systemic evil or, or injustice. And the scripture is saying that the, the king's moral character has implications for his people. It's bound, they're bound up together. And don't we know that this is still true today? That the leaders of the Palestinians and the Israelis uh, determine the fate of their people and their suffering in so many ways. That the character of our own leaders in business or government will lead to either greater flourishing or to disintegration uh, for us as a society. These things are all bound together in, in mysterious but, but powerful ways. And, but that's not the end of the story. We've seen that, that David's failure is real, even as we can learn from his repentance. But at the heart of David's life, and, and, and this story today, is not, thankfully, the judgment of God, but the mercy of God. You know that uh, the, the famous Martin Luther King uh, quote, I'm sure that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Well, I think we find something similar here. You know, we could say the story of God is long, but it bends towards mercy. And let me explain. And we see, uh, we see God's mercy in our, in our text today in, in three specific ways. Uh, first, uh, when the prophet comes to David, he offers these three punishments, uh, three years of famine, uh, three months of being pursued by enemies, or uh, three days of pestilence. Imagine that, a, a three-day uh, pandemic. Uh, and David responds in verse 14. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, let's take being pursued by enemies off the table. You know, I don't want to fall into the hand of man. Uh, the Lord is merciful. Uh, he, he leaves it for God to choose either the three years of famine or the three days of plague. And the Lord is merciful. That God chooses the shorter option, uh, three days of plague. He could have sent three years of famine. It's the first sign of his mercy. Second, even these three days are shortened. Because the Lord doesn't allow the plague to run its full course. Uh, look at verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. God stops the punishment early. And finally, the, the third thing to notice is that God's decision to have mercy, to, to stop the plague, comes be, in verse 16 before David cries out for the second time in verse 17 and offers himself up, right, as in, in the people's place. God stops the plague before David cries out to him. And it comes before any sacrifice is made, as we see later. God's decision to show mercy is not a response to anything that David does to prove his contrition. 
It's based only on God's free choice to show mercy. He's not merciful because David has finally worn him down or because he's finally made the right sacrifice. God is merciful because he is merciful. If this is true, it's an amazing kind of mercy that we can rely on. It means that we're always invited to fall back on God's character, on on his character of mercy, no matter what the circumstances may be. All the other substitutes and, and the sacrifices of Scripture point us to this truth. David does offer himself as a substitute for the people in verse 17. Uh, we will see throughout the Bible many sacrifices that are made at the tabernacle and at the temple. But none of these were meant to somehow convince God to be merciful. Rather, they are revelations that he is merciful. It's not that the sacrifice leads to God's mercy, but that God's decision of mercy and love leads to the sacrifice. This is what the cross of Jesus is is all about. That the message of the gospel is not because Jesus died for you, God loves you. As if God the Father needed to be convinced by the Son to be forgiving. No, the the message of the gospel is because God loves you, Jesus died for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Do you see the difference? At the heart of God is mercy and love that leads him to the suffering self-sacrifice that we see in Christ. The sacrifice doesn't earn God's forgiveness, but points us to it and invites us into it. When you believe this, when you believe that at the heart of God is love and mercy for undeserving sinners, then you can look at your life differently. And you can especially look at your suffering differently. Because it means that the suffering that enters your life is no longer... Uh, a sign for you that God must be upset with you in some way, that he's displeased with you. But you can trust that he's always pleased with you. He's pleased with you so much. He sent his son to die for your sins. And he can use even the worst experiences of your life, uh, even when you're responsible for them or you're only experiencing the consequences of your own foolish actions, that he can use these things uh, for your good. Hebrews uh, 12, uh, verses 10 and 11 says, For our parents disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In context, in this chapter in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author has in view uh, the persecution of believers, uh, people who are being persecuted for their faith, and he's saying that even that, those, those horrible actions of 
those opponents to the faith, that even that can be a part of God's discipline and training for believers. Another way to put it is to say that we trust in the providence of God. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism defines providence in question and answer number 27 in, in these words. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. You hear that last part? From his fatherly hand. Uh, it's based on a view of God's love as a, as a loving parent uh, who knows what he's doing in our lives. And if you have doubt that, that God can do this, that he has the power to use things that are wrong uh, for his good purposes, just consider what the Apostle Peter says in, in Acts chapter 2, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, in his sermon on Pentecost, he tells those who were gathered there in, in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God used lawless men, Roman oppressors, and power-hungry Sadducees to accomplish the redemption of the world on the cross. Do you think he can use your suffering and your pain? If this is true, it means that that all our hardships and, and the suffering of our world are never meaningless. We may not always understand what God is doing, but we can be confident that God's story bends towards mercy and that he is always seeking our good. This brings us to the last part of our text today and, and why the author of the book of uh, 2 Samuel chose to end the story here. Uh, it offers us a, a great hope the story ends uh, with this portrayal of David, uh, who's been humbled by his sin, uh, by suffering, uh, but who stands to make intercession uh, with God in three ways. He, he makes intercession for himself at the beginning, uh, seeking forgiveness for his own sin. Uh, he makes intercession for the people and offers himself in their place. And finally, he builds an altar, and he makes an intercession uh, through burnt offerings and, and peace offerings. And the site of this uh, altar is, is so significant. And this is where, in, in verse 16, uh, right, there's this angel of the Lord who is the instrument of judgment. And it says, after God tells the angel to stop, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And so the prophet directs David to raise up an altar on this threshing floor. And David goes down and he purchases it and he insists that he's not there to take it for free, that he's going to pay for it. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel at the end. Do you know where the, the threshing floor of Aruna was? According to the parallel of this story in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it's on this site in Jerusalem that Solomon builds the first temple. 
sacrifices will be held here on this site for hundreds and hundreds of years. As we've seen over and over again, the, the real message of David's life isn't about him at all. Like all of us, uh, he was capable of great acts of courage and goodness towards others. And like all of us, he was capable of horrible acts of evil. But he was chosen by God not to be an example of great success, but an example of great repentance and faith. And the invitation to live a life like this is open to all of us. Even today, as we gather around this table, we're invited to come with an open confession of our need for grace, and not standing on our success, but admitting our weakness and our failure. And we're invited to believe and to trust in Christ's sacrifice for us. All those sacrifices on that site that was uh, Aruna's threshing floor uh, pointed to a great sacrifice that was coming in the future, in the new and greater David. This David, Jesus, had no sins to confess, and yet he still said to God, let your hand be against me. In the person and work of Jesus, God reveals his suffering, self-sacrificial love. As the prophet Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. His suffering shows us that his love is not just words or feelings. He embodied God's love even at the greatest cost to himself. Let me end with this. We live in a world that is often overwhelming in its evil, in its injustice, in its suffering, and it can be so tempting to respond with anger and bitterness or to become apathetic and focus exclusively on our own needs or, or the needs of our own families. But the, the message of the gospel and, and the way that we see it woven into the story of Scripture, it helps us to, to make sense of the needs of our world. Now, this is a hard story, full of things that are difficult to understand, like the world we live in. But this story is not afraid to name evil for what it is, to give us permission to confess our failures honestly and openly, it doesn't turn away from judgment. And yet this is the story that can bring us a lasting and real hope. Because the hope is as great as the suffering. Jesus was brutally tortured and died. He went into the tomb. But on the third day, he rose again. And he ascended into heaven to rule forever. If you believe in him then you can trust that no matter what, he is the king. He is the lion and he's the lamb. And he will bring his kingdom of justice and peace. He invites us today to find our peace in him, to know that he is our hope. And he says to us today, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you believe this?
Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we do come to you today because we know that you are the one who holds our hope in your hands. You are the one that we can trust. You have shown yourself faithful. You are holy and you are merciful. And so we bring ourselves to you today and we pray that you would work in us by your spirit, that we might repent, that we might trust, that we might follow in all the ways that you call us to uh, as individuals and as a community, uh, that we might truly be your people and uh, be signs and symbols of your mercy and love uh, in our world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.